Premier Christian Newscast. Immigration is never far from the headlines these days. Whether it's the government's highly controversial plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda, the so far unsuccessful efforts to stop migrants crossing the channel on small boats, or even the scheme set up almost overnight to bring in hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian refugees, we're talking a lot these days about borders and those who are crossing ours to come into the UK. It raises passage on both sides of the political spectrum, whether you're for open borders or slamming down the drawbridge. But should the church weigh in on something so contentious and provocative? Is there a common Christian traditional values that we can offer to the public debate? Was Justin Welby right to use his spot in the House of Lords to try and amend the government's flagship migration bill? Should we share the concerns of those worried about illegal and dangerous migration and people smugglers? Or should we instead be guided by the biblical calling to welcome the stranger in your land? I'm Tim Wyatt and this is the Premier Christian Newscast. This week, I've gathered a panel of Christian leaders and thinkers on immigration and refugees to think through this hottest of hot topics. Well, hello, and thanks so much for, for joining us on the newscast. Um, really pleased to have such a great panel of guests. Um, can I start by eating each of you to, to, to briefly introduce yourself? Um, Julian, why don't you go first? Certainly. So I'm Julian Pryor. I'm a senior director at Good Faith Partnership, uh, which, for those of you who don't know, is uh, uh, a social consultancy looking to work with faith communities and government and voluntary sector to try and find some common ground on some challenging social issues. Um, but it's probably worth also saying that prior to that, um, I started a charity in the northeast of England supporting refugees and asylum seekers. So my main experience for the last 20 years or so is, is really at a, a practitioner level, at a, very much at a local level. And so that's what I'm trying to sort of bring to perhaps a more policy angle these days, but uh, coming from that perspective. Brilliant. Uh, Bishop Rose, who are you? I'm Rose Hudson-Wilkin. I am the Bishop of Dover in the Canterbury Diocese. And of course, it is uh, on our shores, uh, on my shores, in my patch, that uh, those who are coming in by small boats are arriving. So I feel very much a, a hand in it all and, uh, um, and, and, and believe that the church... Uh, does have a message um, and a part to play as well in this. So I'm delighted to be part of this discussion. Thank you. And last but not least, Krish. Hi, everybody. I'm Krish Kandaya. I'm the founding director of the Sanctuary Foundation. Um, I'm a son of immigrants to the UK from Sri Lanka, Malaysia, and um, my family have been involved in refugee works since the Kosovo crisis back in the day. Um, but delighted to be part of this conversation. Brilliant. Well, I'm really glad to have have you all on board. Um, clearly, immigration has become one of the most kind of contentious, high-profile issues in politics in recent years. Um, it's, it's clearly top of the news agendas many days. Um, 
I wanted to start by asking, do you think the church should have or does have a, a single kind of approach to the question of migration or should it be kind of treated as as we might with some other kind of contentious areas in politics around, you know, taxation or public spending and say, you know, clearly Christians can disagree and let's not, let's not go there. Is there a single a single vision or a single way we should be looking at this issue as as, as the church? Chris, why don't you go first on that? Well, I think clearly the church doesn't have a single view on it, but maybe it should. Um, surveys done in the United States, for example, tell us that white evangelicals are the most likely to oppose immigration and asylum to any other group. That means atheists, Muslims, uh, Sikhs are more likely in America to be positive immigra- to, around immigration and asylum than Christians. And yet the way I read the Bible, it's really clear that how we welcome the stranger, it is a mark of whether we're actually in the kingdom of God or not. You know, in Matthew 25, which is the clearest parable Jesus ever taught about who's in the kingdom and who isn't, how we've responded to the most vulnerable, particularly strangers are mentioned. Um, and a stranger is the Old and New Testament equivalent of the migrant, the asylum seeker, the refugee. Um, that's a mark of whether we belong to God or not. So I think we should be more aligned than maybe we are. Rose, would you agree with that? I, I absolutely agree 100% with that. The, the reality is throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, there is that big thread, a rope running through, which speaks about uh, holiness, not being something about how many times we pray or attend a place of worship. It's actually about how we treat those who are most vulnerable in our communities, in our world, in our society. And so from that perspective, I believe passionately that every single one of us who profess faith ought not to be pulling up the drawbridge, but to be asking the question, how can we in the present day, yes, on the one hand, attend to the people who are crossing, but how can we also ask the deeper questions as to why they are leaving the places where they leave from and, and, and how we can contribute into that deeper discussion in the first instance. But in terms of responding to those who are most vulnerable and indeed the journeys that people make to get here also adds to that vulnerability and, and it seems to me that the church ought to be hearing those words. I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was sick, I was in prison. I crossed the seas to find a better life. And you were there. But Julian, a Christian might be listening to this and say, well, hold on, I totally agree. If you, if, you know, if the refugee is in your midst, you have a Christian duty to show compassion, to clothe and feed them. But when it comes to kind of bigger picture around policy, you know, I might believe that God has sorted us into nations and it's good for us to live with people who are broadly alike. And actually, there's nothing wrong about the government seeking to depress at source the numbers of people coming to this country by regular irregular means. And that shouldn't be seen as a kind of anti-Christian position. What would your response to that line of thinking be? I, I think we need to acknowledge how complex some of these issues are. 
um, and, and one nation alone can't solve the world's migration issues. And so I, I think we need to work in partnership with other nations uh, and tackle what is, you know, uh, an issue that is only going to increase with the threat of climate change and, and other issues. And so um, I think we need to acknowledge that that puts pressure on uh, different nations. But I think we also need to, uh, as, as has already been said, treat people with compassion and see people as individuals. I think it's so often, that's what I see, is so often when you actually meet people and understand their story and understand their situation and their challenges, that concerns around, you know, and, and you know, legitimate concerns about resources and how we share those. And I think we need to listen to those. But actually, when we really understand the challenges that so many people who have fled their nation and their home country and understand actually we're so alike we want a safe place to to be able to contribute to society to raise our children to be able to uh, to find meaning in this world and you know so many people have fled because of their faith uh, and so be able to find a safe place to to worship their god and however that's expressed um you know I think so often when you actually then bring it down to the individual, you can gain a lot more consensus on actually how do how should we be treating people and how would I want to be treated if I was, you know, in the unfortunate position of having to flee. We have such privilege in this country of being able to worship freely, um, which, you know, isn't shared by many others across the world. So, uh, uh, yeah, when you take it down to the individual level, I think there's a, a much greater level of understanding and consensus that perhaps when we talk about it at a more macro level, we can disagree a lot more. And, and yet we need to be doing both, don't we? Because there are huge complexities on this particular topic. But the reality is that, that this is an international problem. And the United Nations you know, ought to be at the forefront of this. But because we are being impacted here in Britain by the boats coming on the shore, you know, in in a week, 872 people in the last week arrived here on small boats, then I think that our government, our country has a responsibility to speak into this at the United Nations level and actually to, to, to take the initiative instead of running around getting barges and, and, and talking about sending people to Rwanda, we ought to be much more responsible and be asking the questions, how can we take a lead with the international community in, re, in looking at how we resolve the bigger picture that is going to prevent people leaving their countries? So we're talking about how do we ensure that we have stable governments? And that means not sending our weapons uh, abroad to unscrupulous uh, uh, governments who we know will use it on their people. How do we ensure and work with the international community to prevent Russia from blockading 
grain going to countries so people aren't starving because no one in their right mind is just going to sit and, and, and starve. They're going to find a way. The climate change, you know. So all these things have got to be handled together. And I that's what I want her government to do. Instead of pandering to a particular wing of, 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 of sort of right-wing stuff about, you know, people coming to our country. That's right. It's, it's, I, I think, Bishop Rose, you, you hit something on the head there about the, the, the wings. Our, our conversation about migration, asylum has become so polarised because people see you're either right-wing or left-wing. And, and sometimes the church gets caught up in that. The church becomes part of the culture war. We have a right-wing church, we have a left-wing church. And I want to say we need to transcend politics in our church, that, that, that the church should call everybody to account, because ultimately we believe in, in a Lord Jesus who's above politics and yet has an interest in human welfare. I think that the debate around asylum has become so polarised that people think we either want the door to our country to be firmly shut or wide open. And sometimes the two players in the debates, you know, the right and the left, play each other off like that. But I don't think anyone really wants a wide open door or a completely shut door. It's The, the question is often just how wide open and how wide, how, how, how close it should be. My metaphor for this is as a foster parent. So, you know, we have six children that are part of our household. Um, our front door is not wide open. If, if a thousand children needed to come and live, they couldn't come and live in my house because my family would lose its structural integrity. I wouldn't be a family anymore. I'd be a children's home. And that wouldn't be good for the children in my care. But equally, my front door is not firmly closed. If a child is in need, my door is open. They can come and be a part of my family. They can integrate and be part of who we are. And, and I think as a, as a nation, we can have the same approach. As Julian said, we, are, we as a single country cannot be the solution to the global migration challenge. There's 108 million people that are displaced. Most people are internally displaced, but a good chunk of those are refugees. We, we cannot accommodate all of them here, but we can accommodate some. And I think Bishop Rose raised a really good point about us being part of the global community, whether that's the United Nations um, or continental Europe. Even though we're not part of the EU anymore, we need to think about this in the round with other nations. And again, part of the polarisation around Brexit means having those joined up conversations are a lot more difficult. So um, I think there are complexities here, but I think the heartbeat for the Christian is how can we respond most appropriately with compassion and grace so that we can be as um, hospitable as possible and as beneficial as possible to the most number of people? Yeah, just to sort of come up, come back on the, the issue around polarisation, which I totally agree, but it's really interesting seeing what's happened in the last couple of years because the polarisation of the debate is really very focused on a very small means by which people come. And so actually just thinking in the last couple of years, we've had, you know, over 5 million people from Hong Kong being offered the place to come here for safety. Um, at, you know, nearly 200,000 people from Ukraine, many of whom being hosted in, in British homes. And actually that says to me, um, you know, there was very little um, 
disquiet about that. You know, I think where leaders and governments have taken a lead in saying this is the right thing to do, then actually there is, a, you know, a general, you know, and it's not, you know, universal, but a general sense that this is a good thing to do. And so coming back to to Bishop Rose's point, I think leadership is crucial. How we talk about these things, how people in positions of responsibility can frame the discussion is absolutely crucial to how many people think. Um, and, and so I, I think, yes, it is a polarised debate, but actually what's really interesting is there is a great appetite amongst the British people to receive and to welcome when framed in uh, a way that that recognises that actually this is the right thing to do. And my my plea to all those in positions of, of authority or who have a platform to speak into these issues are how we use language is critical. And, and that's where I'm, you know, probably alongside many of my colleagues here, quite critical of the way that the narrative has changed in the last few years, which I think has stirred up this polarised debate, unfortunately. And I, I think that's deeply regrettable. Well, that actually brings me nicely on to what I wanted to just dwell for a second on the particular issue of small boats crossing the channel. It's come up a number of times. Clearly, the Prime Minister has made that a kind of flagship centrepiece part of his government. You know, he stands with a lectern that says, stop the boats emblazoned across it in all caps. Uh, there's a lot of kind of flashy initiatives about barges and whatever else. Um <clears throat> Do you think small boats actually is the big problem that it is being cast by our leaders to be? And if it is a problem, what do you make of of Rishi Sunak's uh, approach to try and deal with it? In inverted commas, Bishop Rose, should we start with you? I think yes. I I think it is a problem in so far as uh, you know they're coming across on unseaworthy um, vessels. And that means a huge risk to life. And, and, and one, you know, I, I have listened to two people responding to the question, why do you continue to risk your life in that way? One young person who was from Syria and is now based in Germany and is going to university in Birmingham, in, 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 in Germany, he said, well, there was nothing left for me in Syria. The place was all bummed out. There was literally nothing. I needed to get an education to support, to contribute back to society. And he's now doing that in Germany. So it was worth the risk. Somebody else who was asked was someone from the continent of Africa. And and, and when he was asked the question, he simply looked at the interviewer and he said, I am hungry. My people are hungry. At least I am young, so I have to be the one to try and take those risks, to to get to a better place. So not only can I then feed myself, but I can help the family that is left behind. So, so, So this is real stuff. So that's why they're risking their lives. Now, if we want people not to risk their lives in that way, and I don't want them to come in small boats, because we've seen firsthand people washed up who are dying in the channel, which looks so quite calm and serene, and then something happens, some turbulence, or the boats you know, sink. Um, 
And yet some of those people we've learned when they have died crossing the channel, that they had family members here that they could have come to. There was one young woman who died who is engaged to someone who lives here. So, so what the government needs, it's not focusing on small boats, for goodness sake. Let there be safe routes for people to come by. Safe routes where they can be processed and not take months and years to process people, but spend the money that the millions they've spent sent to Rwanda or on this ridiculous barge or on hotels. They could have used that money to invest in the, uh, the interviewing process, train, equip people so that people are processed quickly. Do they have a case? Yes. Do they not? No. You know, but we're not doing that. And instead, we're playing a game and making it a sort of political football or, you know, it's between France and us. You keep them there. We'll pay you millions again. It's crazy. It's nonsense. And if the government is serious about addressing this issue, then the governments ought to be investing in how we process, giving safe routes so uh, that people can either go to a neighboring country and apply for asylum through safe routes and not have to use the boats. That's what they need to do. They are not serious. And people who are desperate will use desperate means to get away from where they are. Uh, what do you guys make of the argument? We often hear that this is all about trying to destroy the business model of these dangerous people smugglers. This is uh, a compassionate attempt to try and stop people from risking their lives at sea and that the government cannot just you know, stand back and, and let people, um, you know, continue to be exploited in this way. They're focusing on the wrong thing. They're downstream picking up the dead bodies, for goodness sake. Get upstream and find out what's going on up there. They're not serious. It's a game. It's a political game. I think you're right, Bishop Rose. The, the challenge is we end up punishing the wrong people. It, it's like saying we, we're against rape, but we're going to punish rape victims rather than rapists. And... I think, you know, being harder on smugglers, traffickers, um, chasing them down, that would really be um, a good investment. But equally, as you say, the whole business model gets blown up if there were safe routes. That's the way to fix this. Um, yes. <laughs> so I feel it, it has become a bit of a distraction technique. There are lots of challenges that our country is facing right now. You know, crumbling schools, um, unsafe prisons, uh, hospital waiting lists and it it does feel like the small boats is a way of distracting attention away from those issues and making it about national sovereignty trying to tap into all the issues that brought the brexit vote out and again this is where christians need to transcend and not allow the rhetoric of dehumanization to come in i've heard some christians talk about people diluting our christian culture by allowing these people from other religions into our nation and that's kind of classic, I'd, I'd say, idolatrous nationalism rather than a compassionate response. And again, hear this, when when we push back at that anti-immigrant um, rhetoric, people say, oh, you just want an open door. We're not saying that. We're saying we want to take a proportionate response, but however we respond to refugees and asylum seekers, we want to deal with dignity and humanity, and that's the difference. Premier Christian Newscast.
Premier Christian Newscast. Um, one of the other kind of um, issues that comes up around this debate is the kind of conflation of refugees and, and migrants or economic migrants. Um, I know, Chris, that you obviously been through the Sanctuary Foundation doing a lot of work with refugees. Does it frustrate you sometimes that the government or political figures almost deliberately muddy the waters there around the distinction between those two groups of people and their rationale for coming and, and our different kind of policy responses as a nation to it? Yeah, it does it does worry me. But actually, with some of the rhetoric around um, net migration, it does seem we're taking an anti immigrant posture on a whole range of things think of uh, recent changes in international student uh, legislation so we're making it harder for an international student to come here because they can't bring their spouses and so for me this 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 seems to be educational and economic suicide the international students are worth 36 billion pounds a year to our economy why wouldn't we want them to come here and to contribute and to uh, help make our education system more diverse, more inclusive. Um, so there does seem to be an overarching uh, anti-immigrant posture. We've talked quite a lot about the kind of big picture policy issues, the need for kind of Christian leaders to be prophetic, I suppose, speak truth to power. I guess the other side of the coin is, is, is how is the church doing in terms of the kind of micro level, you know, looking after refugees and migrants um, you know, helping people off the shore in Dover in your own patch, Rose. Do you think the church is, has kind of grasped that that side of the issue well? Should, can we be kind of pleased that we are being kind of God's hands and feet in this in this way? Yes, I think part of the church is, and certainly here in the Diocese of Canterbury, we take this very seriously. We we co-sponsor someone along with the Diocese of Europe and USBG to work in Cali with refugees uh, there at the cold front. Uh, we, we sponsor that. And here within the diocese, we also do a number of welcoming programs. We provide a house, um, more than, well, a, a few houses to assist um, in terms of using having refugees use those accommodations, etc. Et and I must tell you this story. You know, this... Um, uh, Holy Week. Every Monday, Thursday, we have a, a service in our cathedrals up and down the country uh, with a renewal of vows, as it were, in, in, in those services on Monday, Thursday. And uh, some people within the church were using the debates that the church have been having about blessing same-sex marriages. And some people were posturing and saying, you know, I am not going to to join you, join you in, in the cathedral for that service. However, there was one priest who was notably missing from this service. And, and he told me afterwards that that morning he had learned that the, the, the Coast Guards were bringing in people that they had picked up. And so he chose not to come to the cathedral in order to assist. And he said he, he, you know, he grabbed towels and clothes and he rushed down to the beach and and he said he spent the time drying the feet of migrants and I thought yes that's a terrific reason that's a great reason not to be at the cathedral you were being Christ in 
that space, drying the wet feet of the migrants. He said, I was on my knees doing that. And I could never have been so proud of one of my priests. And, you know, so, so yes, we are taking it seriously. We also have a number of the detention uh, centers here, um, which has been in the, in, in the public um, uh, with regards to how people are, are being treated, whether they are being kept in the, you know, appropriately, et cetera. So we take it very seriously. Um, and, you know, I never fail to speak about it or to address the issue in my sermons. There is always a way to angle it in. And I begin from the point, for God so loved the world, not just Thanet, not just Dover, but the world. And, and this is part of God's world. They are God's children. You know, when the first lot of people drowned, I went on to the radio and I said, you know, how sad I was that they are our mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. I had the most ridiculous um, letter from someone who, who began his letter by saying, how dare you say that? I am an evangelical Christian and these people are not our mothers and fathers and brothers. They are Muslims. Now, normally I ignore ridiculous emails and letters, but I, I immediately responded. And my first response to him was, I am ashamed to be in the same space with you, called Christian. Julian, do you see kind of signs of hope? Do you see kind of encouragements about how Christians around the country are kind of getting stuck in? I do. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think I'd echo much of, of what um, Bishop Rose has already said um, in my own church. It's it's largely the reason that I got involved in, in this issue nearly 20 years ago, because uh, our, our church started to see a number of Iranians coming to us some who had converted to Christianity and therefore had had to flee, others who were just seeking some form of community and uh, who, who then were drawn into being uh, involved in our, our services and our worship. Uh, and it, I have to say it's, it's enriched us as a church so much. Um, I think we know much better about how to pray, about people who really have faith, um, so I think we've gained so much uh, in terms of our understanding of the Bible. Um, but also, I think we've, uh, you know, we've looked to try and respond in terms of the practical needs, which are also evident. And so, uh, you know, particularly when people first arrive, that sense of loss and disorientation and, and trauma that people are, you know, really come with. Um, you know, we, we work in partnership um, with many other churches at a local level. I've also had the privilege of being the chair of a, a national network of, of um, organisations trying to address the issue of destitution that so many people fall into. And the vast majority, not exclusively by any means, but the vast majority of organisations that have been started have some church connection or Christian motivation. And, and it's thrilling to see that the church really is taking a lead on these matters. Um, of course, we could always do more. Um, and uh, But there are, are many up and down the country tirelessly working to support people socially, practically uh, and spiritually as well. And I think, as I say, you know, it, it's a it's a two way 
sort of benefit in so many ways. We uh, we've been so blessed at our church for uh, the, the many people who I just have the privilege of counting as friends now who uh, challenge me, inspire me so often in terms of their story and their faith uh, and, and their desire to help their fellow countrymen and women. Um, you know, and, and um, we, just to tell you one story, we uh, were asked by the local authority, actually, because they recognised that we were working uh, into this area. So it's just opened a, a wonderful door to uh, to work in partnership with local authorities and other organisations uh, supporting new arrivals, families who are located in a hotel in a actually quite a sort of remote area of um, uh, of our sort of patch, if you like. Um, and it's been a great thrill having sort of set that project up. We've now recruited a, um, an Iranian refugee who's just doing such a great job and uh, is able to do it in a way that is so much better than I could have ever done. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just a great thrill to see some of that. Um, you know, these issues bring out the best and the worst sometimes, doesn't it? Because we uh, uh, we can see that sort of need um, created by the worst in humanity, but the best in humanity to try and treat people as our neighbour and uh, and go the extra mile to be able to do that. You're so right, Julian. Um, similarly, I've, at a national level, I've seen that. So when the Syria uh, resettlement community programmes, community sponsorship programmes were set up, um, the church was at the front of the queue to be part of that. And as you say, not exclusively, but so many churches around the country have sponsored Syrian families to come here to the United Kingdom. Um, and then, as, as you say, uh, just as lockdown was happening, uh, the UK opened its uh, borders to people from Hong Kong. And again, the church was at the front of the queue to welcome Hong Kongers. In fact, we've seen the Chinese-speaking church triple in size because of the welcome they've provided to Hong Kong new arrivals. Uh, and also English-speaking churches, you know, I visited one uh, down on the south coast, 60 new arrivals in their church from Hong Kong because of the welcome they were able to offer. Um, and then the, the government recognised the church had a key role to play in that. And so when Afghans were resettled into hotels, uh, who was it they called on? Uh, they give me a call and they say, well, you know, can the church help? And I said, well, just wh where are these hotels? Well, there are 30 hotels across the UK. Um, you know, wh where are you guys? And I said, well, we're the church. We're in every village, town and city. There are communities of Christians that have two jobs in life. Love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul and mind and love their neighbour. And refugees coming from Afghanistan with an Islamic faith, they are our neighbours. And so we're delighted to be able to help them. And then the same with Ukraine. We've seen thousands of Christian households and churches get involved to welcome Ukrainians and make sure that they have somewhere safe to live. And it's an ongoing commitment. So there's huge encouragement. I wanted to, to touch on another angle where the church has been involved, and that is in the House of Lords, where you'll be aware that your boss, Rose, Justin Worldwide, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he's been, he, was, he was spearheading attempts to kind of amend and, and, and tweak some of the language around the government's migration bill um, what did you make of those efforts? I believe ultimately unsuccessful, but what did you make of that as an example of kind of, was that transcending in the kind of left right wing divide as you've been talking about, Chris? Yes, yes, I believe so. And, and what you had was a, a voice or voices there within the Lords who were actually saying, we need to be more compassionate. 
who were challenging the status quo of governments trying to, you know, what I refer to it as, you know, people are being trafficked into this country, so we can't beat them, so we will join them and we will traffic them to Rwanda. That's what it felt like to me. And and to hear those voices in the Lords from the bishops, and there were others too, but in particular, I was proud of the work that the bishops were doing and were engaging with in the Lords, challenging all the way. Even if they were not successful in getting everyone to vote with them, their voices were heard, their message was clear. And 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 and, and I think that you know if they can continue to do that sort of advocating and speaking truth to power, then I, I am proud of their contribution. I was too. As a Baptist, couldn't, couldn't have been prouder of my Anglican brothers and sisters speaking up in the Lords. And I think, you know, many people say, oh, why, why, why are the bishops in the Lords? Well, I, I think that was a fantastic example in that there is a political match going on you know some are critical of obviously the conservative party approach because of rwanda but others are critical of the labor party because they're worried of looking soft on migration and and they want to get elected well the bishops don't need to get elected so they can just speak truth as they see it and it's just beautiful that they can bring that voice of humanity and and ethics into that space so you know so proud of our, our bishops for all that they've been doing in the lord's is, is there not a danger, though, that, um, as you say, you know, it's clearly motivated by their, their reading of scripture and tradition and their love for God uh, and, their, and their calling as Christians. But it does also happen to, uh, you know, align with a more left leaning approach to migration. Is there a danger that the church gets typecast, gets pigeonholed? People say, you know, well, of course, you would say that, you, you, you know, you just want a Labour government and, and actually down the line, the kind of political interventions of, of church leaders end up kind of damaging the church's ability to speak for all people of all political persuasions? I think it would be more dangerous for the church to be remain quiet um, because it is afraid. It reminds me of when the, the Pope went to, was it Malaysia? The Rohingya people. Um, so I think that's Malaysia. Is it Malaysia or what's the name of the country? Myanmar. 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 Mm-hmm. And um, and the church there said to him that, you know, he cannot refer to them as Rohingya because they, when he leaves, then the, the, the Roman Catholic Church there would get the backlash from the government. And I was so disappointed. I was really disappointed. If you can't speak up and, 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 and do that, then don't go. Don't go. And when did we ever hear us as a church trying to defend our ourselves by saying we will be um we will be punished you know be punished that's that's the way of the cross that's the way of the cross so i'm not afraid of people saying oh she's left wing or she's on this part you know i i am no member of no political parties you know i'm free to speak my mind on any one of them or anything that they bring in that is, I believe, uh, shows a lack of, of, of dignity for humanity and compassion. So, so no, I'm not afraid of that. Um, and we should never be afraid of that.
Julian? Perhaps, yeah, one angle that very rarely gets much sort of airtime in some of this debate, which um, I'm really pleased to say um, we at Good Faith Partnership have done some work with a number of um, Christian leaders and, and Bishop of, of Durham, um, Bishop Paul Butler, has uh, has really sort of been supportive of looking at how we support people who come to the end of their asylum claim who aren't given the right to remain in the country. And so I, I guess I'm sort of picking up, Tim, on, on your sort of comment actually about sort of left and right. And quite often, actually, how do we deal with that? people in that situation and if we don't have a a, a, a sort of um, a means of being able to support people in that place uh, which currently at the moment is kind of almost ignoring washing our hands of it saying we'll return people but we really don't and people get driven into the underground economy and all sorts of things so the piece of work that we did was really how can faith communities really support people who are facing some very difficult decisions or, or choices. And you know, let me caveat that with, you know, uh, the prerequisite that people have had a fair hearing. But actually, let's recognise that some people may not be able to stay. But just to be able to forcibly remove people or ignore people is, is you know, not a, a compassionate approach. And actually, can faith communities work with people both here in this country, but also in their countries of return, to be able to ensure that people are supported and perhaps find the better life that maybe they were looking for um, in, in their country of origin. So I, I think there are there is um, some challenging issues that um, you know I can speak for for Bishop Paul and other church leaders who recognise that we must engage with these. We don't we can't duck some of these really hard things, but we must do it with our values of addressing them, but doing it with compassion and kindness. And actually, it's more effective anyway, because coercion just drives people away and underground. Actually, if, if we're working with people, engaging, trying to help them wrestle with, you know, what do they do next? Um, but doing it in a way that's listening and helping and supporting rather than this more confrontational approach that the government have have adopted and I think faith communities have a role to play in that Um, and I I think we we shouldn't shy away from those really hard and challenging conversations as as well as you know where clearly we want to be welcoming and help people integrate as well Um, because unless we're able to it it slightly undermines having a process in the first place Um, now, clearly, we need to have a process that treats people fairly and gives people a fair opportunity to be able to present their case. But if all of that is is in place, then I think there is a role to be able to explore how can we more compassionately and effectively help people return home with dignity rather than being shipped off to another country that they may never know and, um, you know, start trying to sort of claim some kind of uh, or rebuilding their lives in a way that's that's really not going to be very effective in the end. I think that's right. I, I think I find myself in two different postures. Um, so, so one is definitely, as we've been talking about, the speaking truth to power. I'd say that that's the John the Baptist model, isn't it? That he's calling out when there's immorality in, in, in government. And that's a totally 
appropriate way to approach um, engagement on these kind of issues and others. Um, but there's another posture as well, which I would describe as the Joseph model, where he's working inside government, not necessarily a government he agrees with on a whole range of different issues. Same with Daniel. Uh, I don't think Daniel was pro a lot of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, approaches to other faiths. If you disagreed with him, he, he tended to burn you alive in a furnace. Um, but Daniel and Joseph were solution finders. They were great citizens working inside government to help systems become more humane, more compassionate, more uh, generous. And I think the church has got a unique opportunity to be in both of those spaces, that when we call government to account, we're not partisan, we're not personal, it's not personal attacks on the integrity of individuals, it's not uh, victimisation or bullying, we're just speaking up for the vulnerable. They're kind of Proverbs 31 verse 8, you know, giving voice uh, or being a voice for the voiceless. I think that is important. But also we want to be the nation's best citizens because God calls us to love our neighbours and love our enemies and love our political opponents and and to love migrants and to love refugees and to love um, vulnerable children and widows. So so we should be the best citizens that this country's ever seen, empowered by the spirit and with great humility. That should be our ambition, at least. And I think that's one of the things that makes us quite unique. We're not just a lobby group. We're not just a a bunch of rabble-rousers. We are actually going to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We're going to help people taste and experience the goodness of God wherever they've come from, whatever they've experienced. And I think getting that balance right is really hard. But I'm so encouraged that so many times the church has got it right and we've got something to offer both at a national discourse level but also on the ground. Well, that seems like a very encouraging and upbeat place to to draw our conversation to a close. Um, Thank you so much, guys. It's been a really fascinating discussion to kind of eavesdrop into. And I'm really grateful for your insight and your reflections on this quite spicy topic at times. Um, So thanks for treating it so so thoughtfully. Um, uh, We'll uh, we'll obviously um, have to kind of follow the story as it goes. I'm sure we'll be talking about it more on the podcast in coming in coming years. Um, But for now, thank you, Julian, Krish. Rose for your time and um, thank everyone for listening I'll be back with another episode next week bye bye that's it for this week's premier Christian newscast but if you've enjoyed what you heard please do leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use and why not also tell a friend about the show Don't forget, you can also subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get each new episode sent automatically to your phone or tablet week by week. If you've got any questions, feedback, or want to suggest a topic we should explore, you can email me at tswyatt at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast. 